Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, recently, we have been on a bit of an adventure um, talking to people who are either reviving or seeking out the lost British manufacturing industry. And today, we keep down the same path. My guest today is into knitwear. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Genevieve, and I'm the founder and designer of the brand Genevieve Sweeney. Um, so I manufacture and design British knitwear um, across the UK with um, small family-run mills um, and just celebrating and championing um, British manufacturing and natural fibres. Now, I imagine this was a business that basically just sort of started, instant success, no hassle at all. <laughs> it took, 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 took some time. It took a lot of um, a lot of planning, a lot of research. Um, I always knew I wanted to set up my own brand, but I didn't know what kind of my purpose was when I left university. I went um, and um, I went and worked for other other brands, and just kind of tried to work out what what it was that you know I wanted my brand to be about and what I wanted it, it to say. Um, and yeah, so it, it was something that took a lot of research and a lot of time. And when I came across British manufacturing, I I kind of just fell in love with the kind of passion, devotion. Um, and also the kind of total heartbreak of this kind of lost industry um, that I just knew that this was something I, I had to be a part of to help revive it, to help um, you know bring people's awareness to it. So it was quite a, a quite a long journey. Um, but once I, I met the artisans and the people, it was kind of that kind of set the path um, that I wanted. Yeah, that I wanted to be a part of. So you left university with a degree in. In knitwear, so in a degree in knitwear, very niche, <laughs> a four-year degree, <laughs> um, and I specialised in menswear, um, and it was in at Nottingham Trent University, and it's I think still like the only course that is solely knitwear. Some are kind of fashion with a bit of knitwear, whereas this one you learn kind of all the technical side, all the kind of creative side as well. You learn how to use the machinery. So it's really in-depth and, you know, we were in five days a week, nine to five, whereas some of my university friends were, you know, had a couple of lectures a week. So it was really hands-on and uh, very informative. But, yeah, I absolutely loved it. That's incredibly heartwarming to hear that there is a study so specific and still existing today when – you must wonder whether the students actually come out and is there anything viable for them to do? There's not a lot of jobs, definitely. Like when you do leave, I think it took me about six months to find a job and that was that was hard work and a job in itself, kind of trying to find um, employment, um, especially at the time that I graduated. Knitwear wasn't as big as it is now. It was kind of more a couple of key kind of capsule pieces that a brand would have in its collection. Um, and but because this course was quite renowned, you would end up um, finding employment in America or China, um, Scandinavia. So you, you you did get amazing opportunity to travel um, with the work. Um, so yeah, but um, yeah, but I mean, it's, it definitely has evolved over the years. I still lecture um, once a year, 
to the students and you know the machinery has developed and you know what they're learning has changed over the years whereas when I was there it was more kind of all the hand you know huge steel machines that you manipulate by hand whereas now they do a lot more um like 3d um, knit design and whole garments so it, it, it has changed as the kind of industry has changed as well which is really exciting as well so you graduated it took you six months to find a job and then you started working with an established british knitwear company or so my first job was in new york and um, i worked for rag and bone um and that was a really kind of creative it was quite a new brand like a kind of new independent brand at the time so it was just full creativity catwalks um just kind of anything kind of went uh working very hard um i think we designed like 300 pieces for one collection and but like you know eight only went into production so it was you know a lot of work but i learned a lot and working with far east factories and italian mills and kind of working out the kind of time differences <laughs> of all of that um and then I was there, um, there for nine months, I think. And then I was headhunted by Hugo Boss, um, and offered a more kind of technical, um, creative development role, um, for their sports knitwear. So I did kind of a lot of the golf, um, the golf knitwear. And this is kind of where I was, where I, I felt that I needed to learn more about the technical side to be able to have my own brand and, be able to understand how to work with factories and you know how a product is actually physically made um so i moved to switzerland then and worked there with them for a few years um and yeah loved it absolutely loved being with people kind of like the or being in italy like close to italy the yarn mills learning how you know they twist the yarns how the difference between you know different fibers and um and then also kind of being with different factories also across the world, like in Turkey and China, um, and just learning kind of the slight differences of like how knitwear is made, all kind of beautiful, but all very different. Um, and it's just the people that I, I just really love working with. Um, so I've always had that kind of connection of the artisan and, you know, the people that make the absolute beautiful product. Um, and I've been very lucky that I've worked with companies that have very high standards with their factories, you know, have, you know, real, real strong audits. And um, so, yeah, so that's that. Um, and then after that, I um, started to get married. So I moved back to the UK um, and then worked for um, Lan Scott and Shortstone at Burberry. And that's where I kind of started coming across the kind of British knitwear and the kind of lack of um, factories and just kind of relationships between kind of very well-known British brands and and factories, um, especially with Lyle and Scott. I, I didn't realise until I applied for the job that they didn't have their factory anymore that was sold off. And um, it was, yeah, a re kind of really sad to kind of see this, you know, you know, Royal Warrant British knitwear brand that didn't have their factory anymore. Um, so one of my first jobs was to bring that back um, in, into the design collections. Um, and yeah, I just started learning a lot then about British knitwear. 
I think that's very common in British manufacturing now that you have old brands that really have sold off everything but their name and logo and the royal warrants and just sort of keep pretending while they have other people making for them. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess a lot changed in like the 80s and 90s. And I guess the markets are so different that that's what they reacted to. And they reacted to the kind of cheaper, faster fashion and probably followed the customer and the market more than their values and their heritage. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's sad to see when you realise that a brand doesn't have their that that connection anymore, um, and that that heritage line, I guess. But um, but it was it was interesting, kind of re- to rekindle that and to to bring it back um, to the collections and see the customers' response because many of their customers had been a customer, like been a you know avid fan for like forty years, so they they were there at the beginning when they were you know, had Scottish knitwear and and to see their reactions afterwards um, was really interesting. Um, but yeah, but then also interesting to see when the wholesale market doesn't want to pay that price of a British made good um, and having to explain why something costs what it does um, and the labour that goes into it. I'd mentioned a few times that it's the wholesale market or, or the big, big buyers that really sort of killed off a lot of British manufacturing because they just weren't willing to pay what it cost. Yeah, yeah. And I, I definitely found that with um, when I started meeting with factories for my own brand, they their kind of expectation of what, like how many units I would be placing was kind of really huge, like, you know, 5,000, 10,000 pieces. Um with the assumption that I was looking for a cheaper price and you know that's not that's not what I was looking for but you could kind of see they've had you know years of these kind of like big brand battles of you know needing the volume to kind of to to warrant the you know the small price that they were being squeezed um which kind of you could just tell there was a bit you know quite a few chips on shoulders of of that relationship um between yeah the big brands and, and the factories so you were coming in and actually wanting smaller numbers but willing to pay a bit more yeah yeah which was kind of uh, i guess unheard of <laughs> or they hadn't heard for a very long time or ever <laughs> so yeah some of them some of them laughed that's for sure you were just messing with their minds yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so You'd been with Lyle and Scott briefly with Burberry, so you'd sort of started mapping out where these small makers were, and they were mainly in the north of England, Scotland. Yeah, so with um, so I I learnt of uh, kind of a couple of the well-known ones, um, like the Johnson Belgian and the Peter Scotts, um, and yeah, so I started to kind of make relationships um, with them and and learn kind of the processes all the different machineries they had because they still had like the huge great big Bentley frames that did like 20 jumpers and um are just like incredibly noisy and just like I don't, I don't know it's just they're just incredible pieces of machinery um as well as like the more modern um like whole um whole garment machinery so I was learning that there was this kind of um this kind of like innovation and heritage it was kind of slowly kind of 
coming together or um um I kind of questioned it slightly and and learned that they had this kind of huge kind of skills gap um within their linking and finishing so how the the garments are seen together how the collars are put on um and some of them had worked out kind of like cheaper quicker ways of putting on a collar um others um kind of hoped that their staff would stay um or that they would um they kind of didn't want to reinvest into new um into into employing kind of younger generations because often they would spend six months a year training and then the next factory would offer that person a high wage and they would go so you, mm. they were kind of like stuck in a rock and a hard place so then you could understand how kind of like more whole garments and um innovative kind of knitting kind of came into the into onto the scene because yeah there's lack of skill and um so yeah it was very interesting but they were all quite big well big factories for a small brand um so i started looking for kind of smaller makers that i'd heard were still around kind of the people that used to do kind of piecework um like especially with hand intarsia knitting so it was like the old geometric pattern you know golfing jumpers or argyles um and i a lot of them would have been based at home anyway, so would have had their own machinery. So I was, I kind of started a search for, um, yeah, small factories, family run, or people that did kind of piecework at home. Um, and at the time, I had my own studio in East London, um, and I was knitting kind of at the weekend in the evenings when I was at home, kind of just for myself um so i started buying old machines from like ebay and gumtree and like restoring them and um yeah i mean again these were the huge big machines that i worked with at university um really really heavy kind of the size of a car (laughs) um but like beautiful beautiful machines that you can just really manipulate and kind of replay and explore the stitch and um and pattern work with um, so I, I, um, so whilst kind of alongside kind of meeting these factories with my work, I was then traveling around the UK, buying these machines, restoring them, but also meeting ex knitters, um, that had kind of given up and were looking to just get rid of their, their, um, their machines. And they were like in their attic or like one of them was like, brick worked into un, under his stairs <laughs> so we had to like play like, to take a bit of his like wall away to try and get this machine out. <laughs> uh, we were there for quite a while but through through meeting these people it kind of started a conversation of like oh my nephew still knits um or if you go to this pub you'll meet so and so and they do some linking and so it kind of just started this conversation of like finding out who's still working who had a factory and it I would just basically take my husband around the UK and we'll meet these people and sit in pubs and just ask them, you know, tell us like wanting to hear about their their journey in knitwear and their kind of life story and um yeah, and that's kind of where I would find out who was doing what and just ask for introductions and and kind of like hope for the best really. But um so it was it was a real kind of like natural journey of just you know pure interest and and love for the machine and and for the techniques that they were working with but um some of the knitters i'd met like if someone was like oh my nephew still does 
hand intarsia knitting he I think at the time he was the youngest person I'd met that was still doing this technique and he was in his mid 50s and was just had been out of work of knitting for about 20 years when all the um all the kind of factories and brands moved their, their work overseas and he was just just desperate to to knit again like he just loved it so much he had you know a job nine to five but his heart was in the knitting um and when I met he, he when I met him he just showed me kind of some things that he'd done and showed me like how he knitted on this machine and um he was incredibly fast uh, just to watch but you know um but a, a jump a front of a jumper would still take 14 hours to make so even with his speed it's still you know a real labor of love and really slow fashion um and um, but everything he was knitting was very kind of um very kind of i guess old-fashioned sil- silhouettes and so i said how about i you know draw up a graph a more of a modern silhouette um with a kind of more simplified design that you could knit and then show other businesses and brands as a kind of portfolio um, and just see if that kind of brings some interest in some work and I think by our second design that we'd done I kind of realized that this this was my brand that this is what I you know I really wanted to do and I just absolutely loved and um, yeah we worked really well together and um, so that was the start of GS basically um by those kind of chance meetings in pubs and <laughs> and gumtree <laughs> purchases uh, when you were traveling around meeting these people and buying old machines and all this what sort of mood were you in was it uh, sort of were you elated or were you was it a bit depressing or um it was it was heartbreaking like it was i was it it was obviously exciting you know meeting them and but it was it was ultimately heartbreaking because their lives had been shattered and their work had been shattered and um through no fault of their own you know an industry had just stopped and um it was i think it feels quite rare to meet people that still have that passion and that love for something that they've done 20 years later and still want to do it um i felt very kind of very lucky to have kind of been around these people that have that dedication um but yeah it was heartbreaking and something that really played in my mind for kind of months after and um I just kept on thinking what can I do Uh, but it was kind of like a bit of a piece of a puzzle like I had a knitter and then after you know a few months I found a linker but then I needed someone else to be able to wash it and finish it so it was there's still this kind of like puzzle of like right how do I get this to work and I've a factory wouldn't touch kind of like smaller batch pieces. So um, so that was kind of then became a, another challenge of, okay, like, right, I found these knitters, but I've got to find the next step and then the next step. And I'd think that I'd got somewhere and then someone retires or, um, I don't know, they kind of give up <laughs> the industry and they just stop. Um, so it was, it's, I mean, it, for the last seven years, it's kind of been this kind of roller coaster of, yeah, finding, getting kind of everyone together <laughs> in the puzzle. But, um, but luckily, yeah, there, there are people there that, um, still really love and adore what they do. And, um, 
yeah, our, our incredible health sense. So how many cogs do you have in your system at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the moment, I have about uh, three freelancers I work with, like knitters that I work with. Um, and over the years now, factories have opened that do just the linking and um, after a couple of years, they then started offering the washing. So it has kind of, it has changed, but I guess the, the whole landscape has changed so many times over the seven years. Like at, at the beginning, I, I managed to find a really wonderful husband and wife who did all the linking and finishing. Um, and they were just in, incredible. Um, and were very happy to do one off pieces. Again, you know, I, I pay more for the one piece, but. I get an incredibly well-made, you know, a cashmere jumper with that. Um, and so it was very, very, very kind of flexible working, so which worked very well for a small brand. Um, and it was quite easy to scale with that, you know, if I wanted 10, 20 pieces for wholesale, that was that was doable as well. Um, and then after, I think, about four years, they retired. So then it was the, yeah, like, you have to find someone else to do that. Um, so it has been... It has been that kind of, um, yeah, lots of adapting and pivoting. But that's probably about half of my business is the more kind of handcrafted artisan um, knitwear. And then the other half is with um, smaller factories that do kind of more um, kind of sta- staple pieces. Um, and I can I can play with the colours of the yarns and so I might have one silhouette that I I would do a couple of colours in, but I really I twist my own yarns to create different colours. Um, so there's um, so yeah, there's two two kind of different sides to it. I guess the kind of like ready to wear and the more limited edition. I get the impression that what with the people working in the industry approaching retirement age, the machines becoming obsolete, either technologically or because they just break that really the british knitwear industry was heading in a certain direction even if it hadn't (laughs) sort of taken care of itself yeah yeah definitely definitely um it was it was disappearing like completely and what i found amazing was that um a lot of factories didn't want to be known by like um i don't know if, if you call the like scottish textile guild or something like that and ask what factories that they knew of there'd be a lot of factories not on their list because they didn't want to be i guess known or i don't know there wasn't make it british um a website that has kind of different manufacturers on it there wasn't anything online like if you googled it it was you you wouldn't really find anything and that was the same with like factories in like leicester and derbyshire um so it was kind of very much word of mouth and um when I was looking um, to start making socks, um, I was introduced to the um, the wool the, the livery of Woolmen. Um, it's like a city guild in London, um, and there I was introduced to the framework knitters, and through them I met um, a sock manufacturer. So that was quite a quite an, also an old school kind of way of meeting a sock manufacturer. Um, and he, um, he, he, the owner of the factory is again, it's like a family run factory, two brothers. Um, and, um, 
they, they were incredible. I learned, I've learned so much kind of working with them. They, um, when I first kind of went to them and said, I'd like to do some socks, I've got this really amazing yarn. It's like a, um, organic cotton with like a little bit of sparkle and, um, some silk tweeds. Um, can we knit it? And they, they were kind of like, no, because <laughs> it's not, not a traditional, um, kind of, uh, fiber that we used. Um, but they made for quite well known British brands as well. And, um, one day they had, um, all their yarn stuck at customs. So I got a phone call about like eight in the morning saying, if you can get to Derbyshire, we'll teach you how to make socks and we'll try out your yarn. And if it works, you know, we can work together. So I, you know, dropped everything, filled my car with yarn and drove up to Derbyshire. And I learned, yeah, how the machines ran, how to check the quality of the socks, like with the stretch and retention and just it kind of blew my mind to how many steps there were in, in making a pair of socks and how many days kind of the processes that go into it. And um, by the end of the day, we had these amazing kind of sparkly cotton socks and they're still one of my best sellers now, um, seven years later. And it kind of started this kind of yeah amazing relationship working together um, where they were really up for trying new new yarns new innovative yarns um like sustainable recycled yarns and um and working in kind of a new way that wasn't you know knitting a thousand pieces it, you know it'd be like knitting a hundred socks or or kind of just working more kind of lean manufacturing more kind of batch work and more um and kind of working you know in their quiet time when they needed you know to busy busy up some machines and stuff so um, it was, it, that was quite a, a great way of seeing how we could take a kind of traditional view of manufacturing and, and yeah, make it work for kind of both of us and, and in a really exciting way. I'm incredibly fascinated when you find these sort of tiny little manufacturers and they are sort of super, super focused on what they do. I mean, I've spoken before on the podcast to Richard Ince, who makes umbrellas in London, fifth generation, I think he is. Uh, and what you're saying also resonates well with when I spoke to Chris Hewitt recently about trying to weave denim in the UK, the secret factories, the sort of, you don't know we're here, we can't do anything for you, but come and have a biscuit and a cup of tea and we might talk. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's definitely. Like, it's not 2022, it's sort of 1750. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And definitely that um, kind of meeting someone face-to-face, -face, not having that conversation on the phone, that's always kind of been the way that, yeah, has, has kind of led to a working relationship, I guess, showing that you're willing to, you know, go you know travel up to scotland to meet them for yeah a cup of tea and a biscuit <laughs> and drive back again i guess it's showing that your dedication which um you might not get with an email or a quick phone call yeah sounds to me also like that you're becoming a bit of a, a sort of um manufacturing nerd yeah <laughs> definitely i mean i think it's something that i've always really loved the kind of technical logical side of of knitting um i've always had i've always hand knitted and um love kind of knowing the process of of it um and just yeah learning how something's made because i, f I feel like you can be a better designer if you know the kind of limitations of a machine or you know how to 
break the boundaries of a machine. Um, I feel like it's, yeah, it kind of gives you more, I, I guess it's, yeah, just knowing what's possible. I find it really, really interesting. And um, I guess also when you see a product being made and you understand the processes and the labour and every kind of hand that it goes through, it gives it such a different meaning um, and it gives it such value because you know that, you know, this pair of socks has had, um, I know, 10 different processes and it's been, you know, five different people have been a part of making it. It suddenly has a different value to it than a pair of socks you might see in a supermarket. If, if, you, did, if you didn't know that kind of, the kind of story behind it and it's, it's the same with the jumpers as well. Like, you know, the person that... Um, links the garment together and I think also being around them like being in the factory and speaking to them and just seeing how proud they are of being multi-skilled that they can you know link the sleeves and the neck and um they can move around the factory and do you know the sewing and yeah it's just I don't know I just find that really magical um uh, just and, and probably one of the best parts of being of having a brand is being with a machines being with the artisans and being in that environment it, i was having chills down my back while you were talking about that because that is just sort of my experience as well uh, and it's the way today we we really have no idea where our things come from clearly they're made but yeah. whether made by human or machine or whatever and we have no idea the work gone into it but when we get the opportunity to go somewhere and see people making stuff it's just incredibly fascinating yeah and it's the same with like food and um kind of anything that you kind of you buy and I think that's what I found really amazing about Instagram when you do find like I, I follow um a florist who has her own um farm and she grows her own flowers and you buy like flowers from the field and kind of following her journey and seeing that you know, one crop didn't do well or something didn't quite work, but something has like, you know, bloomed like crazy. And you see the kind of months of work beforehand, you know, cultivating before they get to that final bunch. It just, I don't know, it gives so much meaning, doesn't it? And it's having that connection with everything that you, that you purchase and the meaning of it and yeah, buying stuff that, that lasts. That it didn't just sort of spring into existence. Yeah. There was actually a long process behind it. Yeah, and a considered process as well, yeah. Now, I do have to ask, how many factories are there in Scotland making knitwear? Because it seems that is the sort of one aspect of British manufacturing that has to be going really strong because there is infinite amounts of Scottish-made knitwear and it's reasonably priced. Yeah, I mean, I know of, I don't know, I know of, 12 maybe wow. maybe more yeah um but so ones so i work with one two three four i work with four in scotland that all do something very different so it could be the accessories scarves jumpers um and yeah and a lot of them might have their own own kind of white label brands as well um and then in um and then in the UK, I work with, I think, six other factories. Again, they all do something very different. Um, so it could be the socks. Um, it could be more um, kind of higher-end um, 
uh, more kind of fashion pieces or it could be um, whole garment um, so like seamless knitting um, so it's yeah it's quite varied um, which is it's quite nice that I feel that well I, I guess there is a lot of competition there is a lot of Scottish knit of, of Scottish knitwear but it is quite nice to see that there are the, those kind of niche factories within it as well that do offer something very different from one, one to another. Is that a conscious way that they've sort of manoeuvred to be able to survive by actually not really being too much in competition with each other, but each having their own little thing? Yeah, I'd say so. I definitely feel that some gravitate to more particular fibres. So some might be the more kind of like brushed, uh, real traditional Scottish spun yarns or the you know, like really chunky kind of natural um, undyed yarns and some will work with just cashmere, some will do kind of the lambs wool blend, some will just do uh, Scottish lambs wool. So there's definitely, um, I feel like they kind of yeah, take a pick of, of that fibre and they do that fibre incredibly well. Um, and and it's kind of, there's no point in even trying it with, a, with another factory because they're just smashing it <laughs> and they just know exactly how to get the best out of that yarn with the knitting, the milling, and it, it creates a kind of longer-lasting product because of that knowledge that they have within. When you were talking about travelling around, finding all these knitting machines, you reminded me so much of Daniel Harris at London Cloth Company. Are you a friend of Daniel's? I, I've met him before, yes, yeah. <laughs> because you two sound like two yeah. peas in slightly <laughs> different pods, but... Yeah, we met. Um, yeah, we met when I was working for Lyle and Scott, and we did uh, um, some denim with him then. And yeah, pretty much the same sort of setup. Like, um, yeah, like he had a like a sh- like a kind of shed with this huge big machinery, and that was kind of a similar vibe <laughs> I had in my studio as well. Yeah, yeah, I think he's got uh, about ten times as many now. But yeah, I actually have one of the jackets you made then at Island Scott with oh, his really? fabric because oh, it was yeah. made entirely in London. Yes, it was, yeah. Oh. Very clever idea. Yeah, that was um, my last kind of um, collection I did with them, um, working on that. Yeah, we, yeah, we did yeah, shirts um, made in London as well. And um, yeah, it was yeah, kind of real cel- celebrating. Is that a sort of mindset you've taken with into your own brand now? the way things are made, where they're made, who they're made by, the fabrics, uh, fibres, the whole story, whether that becomes part of the product as you see it. So that, say, this is a lambswool sweater, it's a certain price, that's it, it's made in Britain. But whether the fact that it's made by a small team doing so-and-so with wool from, say, sheep from that area, and all the rest of it, whether that actually becomes a part of the product itself. Yeah, I think um, definitely the stories, I guess, are created within the designs and, and the garments and even kind of like down to the, like even the button. So I um, I work with a factory near Oxford um, and they I do a lot of kind of um, twisted lambs wool with them. So we twist different colours to create kind of really unique kind of blends that you wouldn't see kind of anywhere else. And when I'm when I'm twisting them um, at home, I'm taking kind of like a centimetre 
of a piece of thread and you know twisting it and kind of like trying to envisage what it will look like you know once it's knitted um and then probably about 20 miles down the road I work with a button manufacturer who um turn all the buttons and we dye the buttons to match the, the to match the yarn so um that kind of it has real kind of I guess there's just so much involved in the kind of small details and so many kind of other hands and artisans and kind of industries within that. I just find, yeah, that kind of creates, it creates a kind of a product more than just like a cardigan. It's because it's got so much kind of, uh, yeah, it's got so many, it's very considered within the details and kind of lots of steps involved. It's, yeah, it kind of manifests into more than a, a cardigan, I, I find. In a just a sort of world shrinking kind of side comment, I could just point out that by the time this episode is published, David Courtney will have been a few weeks before oh, you. Brilliant. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I love David. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've worked uh, when I, I first met David when he took over the factory, and he asked me for a cup cup of tea and said, "Can I talk to you about buttons?" and after smooth operator yeah <laughs> i went <laughs> i wasn't sure what the meeting would be like and i left the meeting and i just couldn't get over how the buttons are made the materials they were used it was i i think i told kind of every person i met about his buttons and the, the materials for, for months on end it was kind of like have i told you the button story <laughs> like i just absolutely absolutely loved it and um yeah, and as I worked very closely with him and his wife um, to create um, really unique colours and um, really play with colour, and they luckily they allow me to really play <laughs> um, and and explore different colours and um, and yeah, yeah, they're they're wonderful to work with. It's very gratifying to see small remaining survivors of British manufacturing sort of finding each other and working together and helping each other. I've been speaking to so many people lately and asked them, where do you get your buttons from Courtney? It is the last British manufacturer of buttons. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think a lot of us, a lot of us do. Um, they're, they're fabulous buttons. But yeah, it's, it is crazy to think that they were, if David hadn't done, done that, there wouldn't have been a button manufacturer in the UK anymore. And it's, that's another is something that as a customer you don't really think about the button um or it's kind of environmental impact if you you know you buy a, a cheap garment and they've got plastic buttons you don't consider the fact that that's going to sit in landfill whereas his are biodegradable they're traceable and yeah it's kind of yeah all those kind of small things that do make a difference sort of another little piece of a, a story in a garment yeah. where people like me and I've started to realise very much you can <laughs> sort of bore people to death yeah, telling about. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think people around me have sort of learned to not ask about anything I might be wearing yeah <laughs> because yeah. yes this might take a while yeah yeah <laughs> But it's, it's those kind of, um, I guess, unusual stories that you kind of wouldn't really hear about. Everyone I've kind of ever told about, about Courtney and Co. I've always then bit, kind of like stopped and thought, I've never thought about uh, how a button is made or, or, you know, what happens to a button afterwards. And yeah. And, um, so I guess it's that kind of, 
yeah, education, but in a, a subtle kind of an interesting way, unexpected way. It is interesting learning about all the little details. I mean, I was fascinated when I was on the Hebrides to find out that Harris tweed isn't made from the local sheep, which is a mistake a lot of people make. They'll say, that, oh, the Hebridean tweed is made from Hebridean sheep, but that wool is sent to the mainland to be made into carpets and Scottish wool is sent to the Hebrides. How much influence do you have on where your wool comes from? So I um, I work with Scottish, mainly Scottish mills and a, and a Yorkshire mill as well, but I don't work with a lot of British wool. Um, a lot of mainly the wool that I use comes from Australia, New Zealand. Um, it's something I've I've when when I first began, I started um, working with a Scottish um, alpaca farmer who had her own um, like real micro um, mill, and it was very clinical, very clean, like so kind of opposite to kind of like the old machines that are used to make. Scottish spun wool um and um you could literally go to the field kind of say uh, you know let's use the fleece from this alpaca and this alpaca and um you could kind of like mix and match and make your own yarn which was really amazing very costly um but a kind of a great kind of um really interesting way of kind of making locally made yarn and from a herd that you can you know Heard that you can touch and mm-hmm. um and by it being quite a micro yarn you could uh, yarn mill you could do things like interesting slubs and create kind of heathers and it was yeah very kind of um explorative and creative which i really really loved because um and actually then we started introducing some lesser blue face to make it a little bit more stronger and durable um so that's kind of the only um, British wool that I've used so far, just because I sometimes I find it like it's really bad to say, but like qu- quite difficult to wear, quite difficult to knit with, um, and sometimes difficult. I think the biggest challenge has been finding a factory that will actually work with the yarn. When you do find a yarn that is that is great and it is soft, and um, I've recently found um, a couple of years ago I found a really beautiful British um, Leicester face yarn. But finding a factory to knit it is, is is the next kind of challenge. So it's me kind of knitting at home, trying different things out, um, just to then to be able to show to the factories like, look, this is this is possible with this yarn. Um, but yeah, it kind of takes a bit um, more kind of like testing, I guess, to then prove that it's it's not going to break on the machine or something like that. I, I agree, and I totally relate to the fact that there are variants of British wool that aren't very comfortable. There is a sort of grade of incredibly itchy British jumpers. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've got a thick shirt underneath, <laughs> but <laughs> they can be a bit trying. Yeah, it's definitely like it. it I feel like there's there's a lot of fantastic people in the market really working and developing British wool and making it you know more more wearable I guess um and I guess with the innovation of of spinning and different techniques it it it, it will 
happen. But I guess it, it, it does feel a massive shame that it, I, I'm not using British spun wool with a British knitwear, but, um, I guess it's still spun, it's still spun here and it still has, you know, 400 years of kind of like knowledge and, um, understanding of how to get the best of the fiber and, um, and all the mills I work with are certified. So, so I know that, you know, they're coming from, um, you know, the, the land they're farmed on that the sheep are looked after. So that's, that's kind of very important to me that, you know, I have that knowledge that I'm using, yeah, the best quality and the best sourced, um, fibers as well. So the wool market now is pretty much global, isn't it? Yeah. And all these, which one is it, which is supposed to come from the chin of a certain goat up in the mountains in Afghanistan or somewhere? Oh, Kashmir. Is that a That's... total urban legend? No, no. <laughs> yeah, Kashmir comes from yeah the front of the, of the goat. Um, but then there's also kind of more, well, more prized, like Vaikuna, which I actually met a, a lady in... Devon, we had a herd of vicunas, like incredibly rare. And apparently when people used to knit with this yarn, it would kind of have its own bodyguard because it was just so prized. Like one cone cost an obscene amount of money that it would kind of have its own room where it was locked. (laughs) And then a bodyguard to come and watch you, you know, knit to make sure that you didn't waste anything. Um, Yeah, she had had a herd and was spinning kind of like small batches of vicuna yarn. How keen were you to make a sweater from that? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I don't think I could afford it, <laughs> but it was amazing, to, amazing to see. Um, yeah, because that to me was kind of like urban legend. This this animal and this yarn, but yeah. <laughs> now that I've got a professional knitter here, there is something I'd like to ask you about: the term hand knit. What does that imply? So when I talk about hand knitting. I will talk about kind of physical hand knitting, like your grandma with hand with needles. Needles. Um, or I will also talk about it in a way like with hand intarsia, where you you you're kind of physically manipulating the machinery. So with hand intarsia, you'll have all the all the needles kind of sticking out, and you follow a graph kind of like paint by numbers, and you lay the yarn on top of the needles and twist the next color the coordinating color and um and you're kind of like hand manipulating the the machine they're kind of what i would count as kind of i would describe as hand knitting but yeah but more kind of um is is it a term that is sort of kind of a bit vague and misused because i imagine the second of the two you describe which uses a form of machine which I have a very vague understanding of is also quite a lot of work yeah so that would still take you know yeah 14 20 hours to make a front panel so it's still a very long process which I guess for um hand knitting if you had some chunky needles and chunky wool you could knit it up a a bit quicker Yeah, well, I have a, a a grandma who who knits things. I mean, she's dead quick, and she's knitting all the time because she gets frustrated if she doesn't have her knitting needles. But I know that it does take a while. But you sometimes, well, quite often, really, you see hand knit or sweaters described as hand knit, but they're suspiciously reasonable, and you sort of think, well, you could have spent that long knitting those. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely on the market you might see something described as like crocheted, and it's it's not crocheted. It's it's been knitted on a machine with a kind of like stitch that kind of looks like crochet because. I often wonder, like, how the hell could someone have knitted that, like, ha- crocheted that by hand for that price? Like, you know, I've, um, like, especially with like crochet dresses, at, you know, for like beachwear and stuff, you know, the ones that I do I've, for like myself or for press, they've taken me weeks <laughs> and, you know, they're selling them for like 50 quid and I'm like, what? Um, so yeah, so I think there's definitely, there's definitely a blurredness to how, I guess people describe it as, but um, I I say it's would would be traditionally linked by hand, uh, but traditionally knitted by hand. Yeah, because I think a lot of these terms are probably so vague that it's easy to use them, perhaps in ways they weren't intended to be. Because if you say, "Oh, well, it's hand linked," not you specifically, but some brand with a bit of a sketchy sort of way of writing their copy, say it's "Oh, it's hand knit, hand linked," and so forth. A lot of people won't realise really what it is and think, oh, but hand knit sounds good, which it does. Especially with hand linking, like it's it. So some of the kind of um, um, less conventional ways of linking, if you look quickly, you wouldn't really be able to tell, and I think a customer in a shop wouldn't really be able to tell unless they, you know, really knew their knitwear. So it's quite easy to be. For, for companies to be blasé and say it's hand linked when it's not, but um, but yeah, I mean, I I could spot it a mile away <laughs> if it wasn't <laughs> because you're a knitting nerd. Because I am a knitting nerd, yeah. yeah. Does it feel <laughs> good to get that out? <laughs> it does, yeah. Especially with linking, uh, that was one thing at during my university course that my tutor really kind of pushed me on was was the linking. Um, and she had me kind of linking quite chunky stuff at the beginning, and by the end of the class, really fine linking. And so it'd be like twenty-one stitches in an inch, like really tiny stitches. It's about a millimeter stitch, isn't it? Yeah, and when it's a black knit jumper, it's yeah, it really hurts your eyes. <laughs> so yeah, so she's definitely she she um she um yeah kind of brought my kind of love for the, for the for linking as well. So seven years down the road, how how are things doing? Is the future looking bright? Yeah, it's been it's been yeah, definitely a roller coaster with a lot of uh kind of global things thrown at me with like Brexit and, and COVID and things. But um it's been I guess as a small business, you you can adapt and you can change and um I started off as a kind of direct to consumer um, business and then kind of, I kind of, I didn't mean to, but I kind of ended up going down the kind of like the wholesale route um, and was stocked at Fortland Mason, um, Liberties, so some like really amazing um, kind of renowned um, UK department stores. And then kind of stepped away from that and went back to just being DTC again. And, um, it's yeah, it's it's a really amazing journey, and I feel very privileged to do what I do because I do genuinely love what what I do, and my customers love the product, and um, it's yeah, it's really wonderful to be able to make something that is worn and loved um, for, for years to come, and um, and they've come on that journey with me, and it's something that I've kind of you know when I've had the kind of the highs 
of I don't know like an award or or something or or getting a you know a key stockist or all the lows of factory closing down that they're kind of been a part of that and and also kind of helps them understand why um you know when they buy from me they are supporting you know a factory and its community and you know kind of it's it's supporting kind of wider thing um so yeah so it's been it's been it's been really exciting especially over the last couple of years like with covid thrown in as well like being able to continue to work um and to continue kind of bringing business to the factories and you know being able to to work with them whilst they had skeleton staff and just being I guess being able to be flexible and um and not to do what the kind of the bigger brands did which was just stop production I could just kind of go at the flow that they needed um that was yeah that was really quite a um I guess an amazing moment to be able to kind of support each other and to to get through that and um yeah the business has been growing very well the last couple of years as well very curious now because you started out direct to consumer then you went to wholesale and then you went back again what was there anything interesting happening around that process um i guess it was kind of um i kind of fell into like the done thing of doing a trade show <laughs> and I, I went and did a trade show in paris um just because I guess a lot of the advice I was getting was to, if you want, you know, you want to be seen, you need to, um, or for the press to feature you, you know, you need to be in wholesale outlets. And I found it very challenging with, um, a British made product, like being able to, you know, to price it properly. I, I, I never wanted, you know, the customer to pay you know, three times more for a product because it happens to be in the store. It just, it didn't sit right with me. So then I was kind of pricing it so low that it was kind of more of a, a marketing thing for me, but that wasn't, that wasn't right for, for a business. Um, so it was, yeah, it was something that, uh, I'm glad I did because it kind of made me realize, I guess, what the, the market's like and, um, what buyers expect from you and um and that is very hard to achieve with a, a British made product but then um I just I've I've always wanted to keep everything fair. So you know the the knitter has a fair, you know I, I give him a fair price for the for the um for the product. He you know he's paid a living living wage. The customer gets a fair RRP and um, that's always been something very important for me. So that I guess that was kind of my own kind of like personal journey of kind of following the fashion flow, but then also kind of stepping back because it, it wasn't right and it didn't sit right with my values. That's a good, uh, good reply. And uh, <laughs> I always feel that a direct consumer does give a better deal for the purchaser, but also a better deal for the seller because you can charge a higher price but the customer is still getting a better price. So apart from the whole industry that relies on wholesale, <laughs> being a bit bummed out about it, yeah. it's actually working very well for the two main players. Yeah, yeah. And and also it means, like, especially with, yeah, and, and, and also making sure that the, you know, the knitter, the maker gets the right, you know, the right money paid for the, you know, for the products because, you know, I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for that person. So... Um, that's yeah something really important um, to me. But yeah, 
so it has it has been quite a journey of kind of the changing and um and I guess with Brexit my customer base has kind of has kind of shifted naturally like I used to sell a lot to to Europe and now it's less so because it's really harder <laughs> but mm. I sell now more to like Australia and New, Ze- um, New Zealand um which is really exciting and and America um so it's kind of yeah it has it's had its kind of twists and changes but I learn so much with every change um and I think it does make the the business stronger and me stronger and um yeah makes kind of I follow kind of the values of the brand. So with the clock ticking ever forward for what's left of British manufacturing, how do you feel about the future? Um, so it's, it's, really, it's really kind of changed and become quite energised recently, which has been quite exciting. Um, it kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, I feel like there's kind of like so many tales kind of twisted within it because there is kind of the quite, depressing side that there isn't there is a lack of skill there's a lack of you know finding getting you know new generation interested in in manufacturing um and taking it as a as a career path um that isn't a massive challenge and um something that like every factory faces but then there's also now especially brexit the the want of factories wanting to manufacture here um and uh, most of the factories are just capacities are completely full which is amazing for them and really exciting but that it's well it's kind of this balancing point that it's amazing that they're they're full and they're busy but we also need to reinvest into the next generation and the next step and just kind of not just need to kind of i guess that kind of forward planning um which is, is a kind of like a huge kind of topic within itself. I've sat in a couple of um, UK trade and investment and um, textile board kind of talking about how to get more apprenticeships kind of into factories and how to, to make people realise that actually it can be a really well-paid job and a really exciting kind of career path and... Um, yeah, it's it's kind. Of, I'm kind of quite torn. Half of me gets quite excited by it. Some of me gets a bit like, "Oh God, <laughs> like we need to do more." Um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter gomology, and it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. I realise I should have asked you this about an hour ago, but would you like to talk a bit about your designs? I mean, what you're actually making? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I, um, yes, yeah, so I, I design both women's wear and men's wear, and I, I do a few kind of limited edition pieces that are kind of the, the hand intarsia, hand knitted um, pieces that kind of really celebrate and kind of show off what you can do with knitting um and then the other part of my collection um are kind of more kind of timeless staple pieces where i really play um and explore with color within the yarn um so it could be with the twists and miles that i've been talking about um 
or with kind of like scattering of tweeds that um, kind of bring kind of lots of kind of color and texture within it. Um, and then I also do um, an accessories range. Um, I've got these kind of like oversized scarves that are like blankets, but they're kind of just the most versatile. Um, yeah, just they really become a part of your life. <laughs> these blankets kind of, and you end up with everyone in the house kind of like stealing them. And but I use them kind of yeah, traveling and I'm working from home and in the car. Um, and then I have my um, socks collection, which is a big part of my business and. That again is just something I, I really love designing and working with because you have the really traditional machinery. Um, but I get to bring in the kind of sparkle and the color and just do something very, very different with the highest quality finish. Um, so that's kind of, and it's, it's a really lovely product because it is more accessible and it does kind of cater to, you know, a wider audience. Um, and so it's, it's really nice to be able to, yeah, connect with more, more, pe- more kind of customers and more people, um, through my socks and with like a sock subscription as well. Um, and it kind of builds quite a really lovely community of seeing how they wear it and, um, how they style it and everything. Right. Now, do you think a lot of British manufacturing is a bit boring? I'm sort of thinking about your sparkly socks here now. Is that a bit of a sort of revolution against the sort of staid nature of... Uh... Yeah, I think it's definitely... Uh, well, whenever I'm in the factory, they always say, like, they love those weeks that I'm there because it's just like this kind of, like, explosion of colour. Like, I take over the place like a rainbow and it's, it's yeah, it's not the traditional, you know, navy, black, white. It's, yeah, it's it's fun and it, I guess it... Um, you can throughout the factory when you see it going through, you know, being pressed or in the wash or something like that. It, you know, you just do get this kind of. It makes you smile, kind of seeing the colours and everything. But um, and yeah, I guess it um, UK manufacturing can be a bit more on the kind of safe side because I guess they've got limited capacity. There's only, I guess, you know, more. Some designs would take machinery kind of out of action for a long period of time. So they, you know, try and keep it, you know, a bit more kind of safe, I guess. But but that's where my yarn choices and my colour can really kind of, that's where kind of I end up kind of challenging the boundaries <laughs> and, um, and making it different. I guess if you've been making black socks for 130 years, you're not about to change your ways. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and change it, change it over a couple of years. Hearing all your colours and all this, it, it sort of reminds me of this question I've been asking people about. There's a lot of talk about buying once, buying better. Oh, I forget the actual words now, but it sort of comes down to actually buying things that you love, like, will wear lots. Do you think more colourful might help out there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have customers that have been wearing kind of like my sparkly spiral colorful socks for like five years, maybe seven years. And same pair. Yeah, the same pair. Good and Lord. Yeah. They, they just, you know, if you look after them, they, you know, they last and they still look good. And, you know, you can wear them smartly and wear them casually. And, 
I, I think it's something that, um, yeah, it shows your expression, your personality, and it doesn't have to be, you know, if you're buying less, buying better, it doesn't have to be safe and boring. It can be fun um, and, yeah, down to the socks. I see a lot of the, the products that are in the sort of better, slow fashion, so forth, they tend to be a bit um, under the radar, to put it politely, maybe not too colourful, a bit sort of beigey. Staples, I guess. That's sort of the way of saying yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah, I definitely like to, to you know, I, I would much rather, you know, the qualities in, in the, in the fibre, in the manufacturing, and you can just create some incredible colours with wool and cotton and why not show it off? Because and, and also it goes with, I feel like it kind of styles quite effortlessly. Even you know a bright kind of yellow pair of socks, it will go with your denim and you know your linen, and it it does complement things in different ways. And when it's got that kind of twist of color or the kind of melange of color, it is it's much more, um, I guess, subtle and flattering. I guess than a kind of block acrylic. Mm-hmm. Natural fibres are what you use. Yeah, yeah. Although socks, I find, are sort of one area where a little bit of synthetics might make them last a bit longer. Yeah, so we do have um, 20% in all the socks are um, plated with uh, nylon to give it that kind of stretch recovery. Otherwise, it would, yeah, it would be under your um, under your heel very very quickly (laughs) so it does need it does need that little bit of kind of stretch and synthetic to to make it long lasting but but yeah i mean most of my socks i've had for for you know for years and years and years they just keep on going now uh, i've been talking for a while i'd want to ask you one question now your husband was traveling around with you Mm -hmm. when you were seeking out old machinery going through the small ads, meeting people in dodgy pubs and whatnot. Is he as interested in it as you are? Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I used to take my husband on um, kind of holidays around the UK, visiting yarn mills and the factories and all the artisans. And it, he really became a bit of a key part with meeting the larger factories who um, it was impossible to kind of get in the door and kind of be you know they would, would never answer the phone or emails or anything and the only way I kind of got a face-to-face was to say who I was currently working for and they would have this kind of like hope that I would then kind of introduce them and bring a bit of business to them so they kind of um I guess um yeah ha- had a meeting with them but then I would kind of be very grateful for Ian being there because the factories would never speak directly to me they would speak to Ian <laughs> and um, kind of all the questions I asked they would direct tip them to Ian which yeah made him incredibly knowledgeable about knitwear but it became a little bit of a fight to kind of have to prove that I knew what um, I was talking about and I wasn't just a designer um, I knew how the fact like the machines worked and I knew how to program so a couple of times I ended up kind of showing that I that my experience by sitting on a linker and linking something. <laughs> but you had to prove that you knew what you were doing, but it was implied that he knew, so they spoke to him. Yes, yeah, so I think they thought 
it was um I guess he was running the show and I was the designer um but it happened to quite a few of the, the larger factories I, I don't know if it was I don't know if they, they'd had kind of like previous experience of designers kind of coming and going and kind of lost that kind of faith in working with smaller designers um but yeah it, it became it, yeah, it became a, a tool that I had to use having Ian there because once I'd got that face-to-face and once I'd got the conversation starting and then proven that I knew what I was doing, then Ian didn't have to come so often. <laughs> um, only occasionally if, like, um, like, yeah, things were delayed and I needed, you know, someone else there as encouragement. But A bit of muscle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it also happened quite recently, like about a, a year ago. Um a factory had said they had like four protos done. And so we thought we'd, I'd never worked with them before. So we drove up to Scotland to work with them, to meet them, see the protos and everything. And, um, Heston, my child was really teething. So Ian was like, I'll just do laps around the car park. You go into the meeting. We thought it would be about three hours or something like that. Went in there and they hadn't even opened the tech packs. So we'd driven like nine hours with a baby. Um, oh and it was yeah it was it, uh, it was devastating just because I was so excited to be back in the factory again after covid so the next time we went up a month later and they had done the protos I then took in the baby as well <laughs> into the meeting just to kind of prove you know it, you know I was making that kind of dedicated trip you know like the whole family has come with me and um yeah just to show I guess my passion and dedication to the relationship and after that they were always on time so that's that was quite good oh that's yeah mm. i was a bit disappointed when you started talking about this having to use your husband as a sort of trojan horse to be able to sort of get even a meeting but uh... now the baby's involved <laughs> <laughs> so he has um he has been through kind of like his own form of kind of like I guess knitwear education <laughs> from all the all these kind of holidays I would I mean bless him I think we we just married I guess we were in that kind of honeymoon stage I would ask him to take two weeks off work and our holiday would be traveling around the UK buying machinery and meeting people and he loved the meeting the knitters and being in the factories and he's actually very very good at um he also is quite into kind of machinery and quite technical with the work he does so he can he can he's pretty good at spotting a stitch or like whether it's something hand linked or or not hand linked um the only thing that he was quite get a little bit begrudged about was the amount of machines I was buying and the kind of lack of space (laughs) that we would have um and over the years as our um studios like we shared or we kind of didn't share depending on kind of what studio we were in the kind of carrying of the machines like down to the basement and storing them there or you know yeah the kind of logistics of machines he's not too keen on <laughs> but yeah they are quite big big cumbersome pieces that's good and it's yeah. good that your spouse supports you your endeavors yeah definitely well I think he knew that when he married me he was marrying into the knitwear world that's for sure in the worst possible way yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> okay so in closing is there anything you'd like to mention bring up is there anything new on the horizon that might be mentioned um yeah i guess uh, 
one thing that I've really experienced and, and, and learned over kind of like my seven years in business is um, how the customers, um, how the customer kind of market and their views have really changed over the years, and which has been really, really encouraging. When I started my business, I always wanted it to be, you know, responsibly designed, um, responsibly made, like made locally. And it was always something that was really important to me because I'd worked in larger brands and seen the wastage of like small things like, um, I don't know, like uh, we'd need a colour sample, like we need to match this, a swatch to um, a colour swatch. And, you know, the company would expect you to DHL it for like the next day delivery, like to China, and that just seemed crazy. Why can't we just, you know, you know, do it once a week, not every other day? Um, so, kind of, that was something that always really um, irritated me about the industry, and something that I wanted to kind of repel. So, when I started my business, and I, you know, I was, I was explaining that you know my yarns are certified, I knew the people that made it. You know, they were locally based. Um, it was small, kind of slow production. A lot of customers would, would be like, oh, that's nice, like a nice story. <laughs> um, and, uh, so you know, cute. Yeah, yeah. And like, <laughs> uh, you know, when they say, oh, I've, I've bought this and, and it's made in the UK, kind of like as an extra bonus. Um, and I did, when I first started, I did quite a lot of um, like Christmas events at like the Barbican and places like that. So I got to actually physically meet people and it wasn't just like, you know, on, on the, the internet. And that was really interesting to how people would kind of walk past and see socks and gloves and whatever. And then as soon as you kind of stop them and pulled them in and explained that it was made in Derbyshire and how I made it, it completely changed their view on it. Or they'd say, I'm from Derbyshire and they connected with it. And um, it was a real, it was, yeah, it was it was really interesting how it it was something that people didn't consider, but it really kind of drew them into the product. Um, and now when I kind of like talk about my products, my customers are like, oh, thank God it's certified cashmere or it's, you know, I love the fact that it's made, you know, near my hometown or something like that. So it's it's been really encouraging how, um, yeah, the customer's viewpoint has has changed over the years. And I guess it's become important for them in their whole aspects of their life like where their food's from where their clothes are from um which has been great do you have any sort of idea why that might have happened i guess it's with kind of all the global issues we have and it's, it's become more of a conversational piece and um especially after covid like people shopping locally and you know seeing um how um like you know production how how that was affected by it i guess it did bring more awareness to it but it's definitely been in the last like three years that i've noticed a massive change and that kind of importance of yeah why people will shop with me um which has yeah been, been been really great i suppose it did kind of sort of bring forth the people behind brands in many cases because you realize that well when a factory closes down there's nothing to be done and maybe appreciate them more when they get going again yeah definitely and it was yeah something i really i guess people at home on their phones on social media it's something kind of i've kind of really communicated and talked about um and you know i i would hope i put items on pre-orders and we would hope for like an august delivery but 
you know, we were working with a skeleton staff, scarf, staff, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, you know, yeah, there were issues with couriers and, uh, you know, I, I would kind of, I would, I would kind of be very open and transparent with, with the kind of issues we were facing, but we were working our hardest, you know, doing double shifts to make it happen. And, um, and I guess that brought a lot more understanding to how something is made. And when you have, you know, unexpected, um, halts in production, what that backlog does, you know, even if like someone had COVID in the linking department and they're off for 10 days, that's, you know, a huge kind of effect on that factory. And it's really hard to, to, you know, make it back up. It's not just, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, it ends up putting you kind of like three weeks behind. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's something I really, um, communicated with my customer, which not as a, as, as a, something to kind of, um, as an excuse, but just, just to be open and, you know. Yeah. Cause it's not really something you're excusing, is it? You're just explaining the harsh realities of this is how it is. This is what we have to deal with, but we're sorry about it, but yeah. we can't do any better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and luckily people were, were happy to wait and, you know, they didn't mind if something was delayed by three weeks or something like that or two months. So, so yeah, so mm. that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so for the upcoming, for the next couple, uh, for the next year or so, I've been working with a, a really great, um, a new sampling factory in the Northeast. Um, they do kind of small runs and they, their kind of aim is to do the kind of programming in-house. Um, and then you do kind of like a small, small kind of capacity with them, like anything from like 10 to 50 pieces. And then the idea is that you then give that to the factories, um, to manufacture. Um, so it's a kind of like a really interesting way of working because at the moment, yeah, all the factories are over capacity. No one wants to work on any new development, new designs because it pulls their machinery out of, um, production. So I'm, I'm really hoping that this is a, a kind of new working relationship and a kind of new part of the, the jigsaw of, um, being able to do like exciting kind of like more fashion focused pieces. Because you're, you're not really after sort of making 5,000 sweaters the same you'd much rather have someone who can make small runs of various stuff yeah yeah so i i do like my kind of best sellers i do kind of runs of like 100 to 200 pieces but i ultimately i don't want to create wastage or kind of you know manufacture huge amounts um so i you know i, I do want to kind of work on the kind of like yeah 50 pieces that kind of smaller smaller batches um, where you can offer something more exclusive, you can, um, do, you use kind of, I guess, more, um, like I love using, um, like end of production yarns that are kind of left over in factories that have kind of been sitting dormant for a couple of years. And, you know, being able to do something with that, um, and create a small kind of limited edition kind of capsule with that is, is something that I really love to do. And it's, I do it a lot with like my socks and my slippers, um, and my intarsias, um, just because you don't need a huge amount of yarn. You can, um, you can, yeah, you can be more flexible with it. So yeah, hoping by, um, working in this new sampling company that will kind of allow more kind of flexible 
designing responsible designing um, and gives the customer something different whilst kind of creating that new relationship with the factories when they are at full capacity they're not you know bringing on new machines new employees and it can yeah it can kind of work to everyone's kind of benefits you see a benefit in making smaller amounts and selling them out rather than being sort of stuck with them and having to discount them yeah it's something i've never really um wanted to do the kind of discounting because i I feel like it kind of um devalues the product um and i guess from kind of past experience of you know manufacturing thousands tens of thousands and knowing that they sit in a warehouse for 10 years it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me and also i only have a small studio (laughs) so i couldn't fill it up with too much stuff but um but yeah i just think it's something that um that is more limited edition that is more special um and yeah there's less wastage um is something that i i've i really want to kind of continue so i i don't have many sales um it's like once a year and that's normally if i've got a couple of like odd sizes so i do keep my stock quite lean for that now clearly as a company you have thousands of employees i mean how do you see yourself growing in the future so it's been just me <laughs> for the first um five years um and i've got an assistant um for the last year which has been incredible like she does all the packing and the stock taking organizing she's just organized my life which has just been amazing um i'm not quite sure what i did without her <laughs> before then but now i'm um looking to to grow my mar- my marketing team to taking in press um, and, and like social media and um, paid ads and so yes it's become a quite an exciting time where um i'm spending more time kind of on the bigger picture of the business and more on designing and less on the day-to-day and being able to um hire locally is is, is really like wonderful as well i do often wonder when i talk to small businesses which are just sort of one person who are basically making shipping marketing dealing with inquiries and i wonder how on earth does that really work it must be so much work unless you don't have any customers yeah it is a it is like a full-time job but when i say full-time it's you know until 11 o'clock at night and then first thing in the morning it's definitely um especially when i was packing as well that was just crazy because you you kind of just spend all day packing and then you're catching up in the evening and there's just never enough hours in the day and i guess so only so many things you can do so definitely by having um my assistant i can now kind of you know focus on the future and build the relationships with factories and build my customer base which is um yeah which has been like invaluable but um and just nice also to be able to grow the team and grow their grow the experience as well but i guess my my um future goal is to have um like a kind of small sampling factory at my studio where i can have university students and train them i can have apprentices and teach them how to link and um kind of like the running of a of a business um so that's that's my goal because i feel like that's yeah it's so important to kind of give back to the next generation and to be able to also have that flexibility to do a little bit of manufacturing in-house um, and to do the kind of creative stuff in-house and not having to 
you know, wait a month for a factory to do it and send it back and just to be more reactive and, um, that kind of ties in with the kind of like end of production yarns I buy, like the small, the small kind of cartons that you can't, yeah, do at big runs with. It strikes me that sort of part of getting younger people into manufacturing, thinking forwards, must be to make the jobs seem cooler, more desirable. Uh, maybe going into work in a sort of bleak, dark factory on the wrong side of town doesn't seem like the sort of future you were dreaming of, but being part of a sort of hip, cool knitwear studio might actually be make it that much more attractive. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, being in a light, white space, <laughs> definitely a clean white space would be, yeah. And it's something I've, um, yeah, make it, make it, I think what I find, even when I work with the, the factories I do work with, like sometimes they don't ever see, once they've made something, they don't ever see what happens to it kind of later down the, the line. So I always share, you know, my press that I have if a celebrity's worn it, because then they can see, you know, what, what happens to it. Or, you know, I share my customer feedback with them because they're, they're so incredibly proud when they receive that. And it's it's not, it, you know, their, their work has that continued kind of life it doesn't just end when they put it in that you know that shipping cart and it comes to me um and even with I think with um with like students I I am lecture at Nottingham Trent once a year and I really try and show kind of how important the other roles within the design fashion industry are like development um production it's not just about being a designer the you know, you can have an incredible career working in in the kind of production side of it and, you know, travel, see the world, um, learn an incredible amount. But because people don't talk about that part of the industry, no one kind of assumes that it is glamorous, but often you'll, you'll learn more than you're not just the designer, especially when you're, you know, the intern and then the assistant. You, you know, you never get the opportunity to go to, like, yarn shows or you know see the factories if you get start your own company you get to do it all including packing yeah, including <laughs> packing, yeah. <laughs> okay genevieve this was lovely thank you so much and bye-bye for now thank you very much for having me And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>